This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, a lot has happened on the national security front in 2022. We'll talk to a panel of journalists about the biggest defense stories of the year and what to watch for 2023. Then, a price cap on Russian oil is now in effect. It is the latest effort by the U.S. and its allies to weaken Russia's economy. But one analyst says it may not do all that much. He joins us to explain why. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. As 2022 wraps up, we look back at the top defense stories of the year and stories to watch for 2023. Aaron Mehta is editor-in-chief of Breaking Defense. Marcus Weisgerber is global business editor for Defense One. And Leo Shane is deputy editor for Military Times. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having us. Aaron, I'm going to start with you. Russia invaded Ukraine in February. I'm going to guess that's the biggest defense story of the year. Yeah, and I don't think it's particularly close. Uh, there were a lot of plans heading into this year about how the Defense Department and uh, the U.S. government as a whole were going to kind of focus on China, uh, make that the big push in terms of national security. And come February, that just went out the window. Uh, it's it's safe to say that the Ukraine situation, Russia's decision to invade, the fact that Ukraine has managed to hold them off as long as they have, and in fact, reclaim territory at this point, uh, is probably one of the biggest defense uh, single events that we've seen probably since 9-11. And how has the Pentagon pivoted as a result of that? How has strategy changed or been adjusted? Yeah, we're seeing things uh, like, you know, referring to Russia as the acute threat. They're still trying to keep a focus on China for the long term in terms of how they're investing, in terms of technology development, things like that, hypersonic weapons. But ultimately, the Pentagon has had to focus on supporting the war that's going on right now. And that means focusing on production of ammunition, munitions, trying to get more equipment sent to Ukraine, trying to drive partners and allies to give more as well. Well, let's talk about that equipment, Marcus. A lot of military aid has been sent to Ukraine. Talk about the evolution of the types of weapons being sent. Well, we've seen early on, we saw we saw stuff like anti-tank weapons and stuff that was just to, you know, blunt a Russian offensive. But as time has gone on, we've seen the sophistication of the weapons and the power, power of them increase. Of late, we've seen artillery go in. The HIMARS artillery has gotten a lot of press in recent weeks and months. Also, we've seen uh, uh, kamikaze-type drones come in. We've seen the Russians use kamikaze drones. We've seen the Ukrainians use them. The Ukrainians keep saying they want more and uh, more stuff with longer range. The U.S. has had a hesitance to do that for fear that they'll target stuff in Russia. There have been some reports that the U.S. is kind of geofencing, if you will, some of these weapons going in, but also some of the stuff uh, that we expect to continue to see is stuff like counter drone technology and also we have seen already counter missile technology like the NASAMS uh, missile defense system which uh, officials have told us has been incredibly accurate in shooting down Russian missiles. And Leo you follow Capitol Hill there's been strong support for Ukraine from uh, Congress this year what have Republicans signaled about next year when they take control of the House? Yeah, I mean, there's been strong support so far, but we'll see what's going to happen next year. We're getting a real mix of, from House Republicans on whether or not that's going to continue. Uh, House Speaker Kevin, incoming House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has signaled that he might want to pull back some. There's a, a, a very conservative contingent of the, the House uh, Republican caucus that, that has said they think too much money has gone 
On the Senate side, we have both Democrats and Republicans still saying, no, we're, we're totally committed here. We're going to have the money go in. So it's going to be a bumpy few months. I don't know if those, those large appropriations that we've seen are going to continue. And Aaron, I want to ask you about supply chain issues. Um, the ability of the Defense Department to replenish those stocks of munitions and weapons going to Ukraine. Yeah, well, and it's not just the Defense Department. We're hearing this from allies and partners in Europe as well, saying we are essentially at the point where we can't draw down anymore legally because we have our national stockpile requirements and we've given so many that we're now hitting that. Uh, we've had, for, for Norway, for instance, has said they're looking at changing their laws to be able to give more to Ukraine. The problem is people can only give so much before they're just out and there's only so many production lines available to actually build these things back up. And Marcus, what are, uh, on the defense industrial side, what are defense contractors telling you about that? So j just like Aaron said, we're actually hearing now people talk about new ways of producing weapons, stuff like co-production, actually standing up assembly lines closer to the battlefield. But even just ba back here in, in, the, in the United States, the defense industry for the past year and a half plus, pretty much all throughout COVID, has had three prime issues. Workforce issues, they can't find enough people to actually work. Um, uh, in the factory, they've had uh, the supply chain shortages, and now inflation is driving the price of stuff like raw materials, wages, and even in factories in Europe, stuff like energy, the, you know, the, to heat and put electric in those buildings, driving it up. And Leo, you know, speaking of personnel, one of the biggest issues in that uh, sense was recruitment issues across the military services. Yeah, that's been a point of frustration all year. And as we're seeing, you know, a lot of this focus to the equipment and trying to figure out how to replenish and stuff, just getting the people in the door has become an issue. The Army missed its recruiting goals this year. The other services just barely got there. That's going to be an issue going ahead, too. How much are we going to see those recruiting issues continue? There's been a lot of pushback over whether or not that's just the economy? Is it some of these, um, you know, diversity, woke military issues, as we hear from the Republicans? Um, and then we actually saw it manifest in the last few weeks over uh, the, the vaccine mandate. About 8,000 people were booted out of the military for, because, for refusing the COVID vaccine over the last year. Um, now the, the Congress is poised to roll that back to make sure that um, future recruits and future folks won't have to take the vaccine mandate. But Will that help with recruiting? It's it's unclear if that's going to really make a dent. And what happens to the 8,000? Will they be allowed to come back? Or not, not right now, but that's going to be one of the major pushes by Republican lawmakers next year. They've said that those folks should not only be allowed to come back, but they want to give them back pay as well. Democrats are saying, look, they refused the lawful order. We can't have them come back. That just undermines things. So it's it's going to be a bumpy going to be a bumpy 2023. And are the services telling you that 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 those recruitment and retention issues could affect readiness? They're, right now, they're saying they're they're on top of it, but it's not a hard uh, hard bridge to cross there to say that if they continue to have the recruiting issues, if they continue to start to to fail to get the right number of people in, that they're gonna they're gonna see shortfalls. So for now, they're they're saying we're fine, but two years of bad recruiting, three years of bad recruiting, that's not going to be the case. And Marcus, real quick, you know that's that's obviously affecting on the contractor side. It's a very tight labor market out there. It's, it is, and the the defense industry is very much like the you know regular. Job, a job labor market throughout the country, but specifically defense companies are having trouble finding engineers, stuff like software engineers, and, and trades jobs, stuff like welders, which take years to train. All right, gentlemen, we're gonna take a pause here, stand by, and we'll come back. After the break, we'll continue our conversation about the top defense stories of the year. Don't go away.
I'm back with our panel of defense journalists on the top stories of 2022. Aaron Mehta from Breaking Defense, Marcus Weisgerber from Defense One, and Leo Shane from Military Times. Marcus, you alluded to this high inflation has been a big issue for consumers. How has it affected defense contractors? Well, it, just like consumers, it's, it's affecting the price of everything. Everything's being driven up. The question becomes, now it's costing more for companies to build weapons, no doubt. The question becomes, does the Pentagon make up for those increased costs? It's so far said, no, it's not. And it kind of seems like it'll probably down the road just make them up on future buys. For the big companies, that's fine. They have tons of liquidity. They're, they have tons of, you know, their, their accounts are very, very well stocked right now. But for small suppliers, the, the mom and pops who are making, you know, rivet, uh, rivets or bolts or something like that, that's not the case. They have fixed price contracts with the Lockheed Martins of the world, the Raytheons of the world, and they have to deliver. Now, if it's costing them to more money, it's up to, you know, the company to either, you know, pay them or not pay them and then run the risk of them going out of business. So then they have to find somebody else to do it. And then you have supply chain issues. Correct. Leo, the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, includes a 4.6% pay increase. Mm -hmm. That, does, that still doesn't make up for inflation. Yeah, look, it's the largest in 20 years, but as Marcus is saying, if costs are up, if your grocery bill's up, if your medical bills are up, that doesn't really cover it. So it's been a lot of conversation about how, how we look at military pay, how do we handle that. There's going to be a study uh, next year. Um, we'll see some preliminary results in April. But really looking at the entire military pay table, is the military pay system set up enough to respond to problems like historic inflation? Um, are there ways to do it differently? Do they need to just target some of the lower ranks? So. Uh, you know, if you're there, there was talk about making it progressive, so giving more to the lower ranks, less to the uh, to the and higher. That, that has been done in the past, but right now, the way we've been doing the calculations, the way the government has us set up, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty strict formula. It's a pretty easy thing to follow each year. Again, troops see an increase every single year. That's not something that everyone in the private sector gets. So it's hard to argue that you know there's a problem with the system. But Congress is at least going to look at it in light of with all these rising family costs, are we still doing military pay right? And if you're inevitably gonna, if that happens, you're inevitably gonna have those in Congress who also say, if the troops are getting this much more money, then the weapons that, that we're buying for them, that should get equally plussed up so the, the pay doesn't start crowding out those other accounts. And the defense budget is already pretty high, so at what point do you say, hey, we've gone way past what mm -hmm. we can afford as a country? Aaron, let's talk about uh, another big story, which is Finland and Sweden applying for NATO membership. Is that going to happen in 2023? Yeah, I think it's likely to. You know, there's an expectation that right now uh, every country except Turkey and Hungary have approved Finland and Sweden to join NATO. Uh, the expectation is basically once Turkey says it'll do it, Hungary will do it pretty quickly. Both countries are holding out right now to get some concessions, uh, Hungary particularly on the EU side. Turkey's been trying to get some F-16s from the U.S. Uh, for several years, which has been held up in Congress. So both sides say, hey, this is a chance for us to kind of make our power play, and they're trying to take advantage of it. At the same time, you talk to people from Finland and Sweden, uh, and there's an expectation that this will get done. Marcus, the Air Force unveiled the B-21 bomber, the Raider. Uh, what does it bring to the military, to uh, new capabilities? So I was out actually in Palmdale, California, in the desert a, a few weeks ago to go see the, the rollout of this new plane. And basically, we, we still do not know so much about what it can do, because so much of that project is classified. From what, from what you know, the Northrop folks who are building it have told us, the Air Force has told us, it has a new new generation of stealth, uh, unlike the, you know, the, an evolution, if you will, from what, let's say, the B-2 had, 
you know, when was when it was the dying, you know, four four plus dec decades ago. So that's supposed to be a big thing. It's supposed to be able to do other missions like uh, intelligence, um, and it can uh, possibly down the road, it's probably going to be able to operate with or without a pilot inside. Well, we'll see in 2023. <clears throat> Leo, what's the biggest story you're going to be watching for next year? You know, the the recruiting issue, as we talked about, is going to be one that we'll see going ahead. Um, one that I'm particularly tuned into is just the number of veterans in Congress we'll see next year. There's going to be an increase for the first time in about 10 years. Um, we're always promising that more veterans in Congress means that Congress is finally going to have more camaraderie and get along. So I'm sure that going into 2023, <laughs> everything will be fine and there'll be no real conflicts between the Republican-controlled House and the Democratic-controlled Senate. So. Okay. Way to be optimistic. Aaron, what about you? What's the top story you're going to be watching? I mean, to me, it's continuing to follow from Ukraine and what that means for the Pentagon writ large. You know, there's Pentagon for three administrations now has been trying to pivot to Asia and that tends to be, uh, first it was undercut by the Middle East, now it's been undercut by situations in Europe. So how is the Pentagon going to manage to try to focus its uh, attention back on China, which they continue to say is the big threat going forward? And you hear that from the Biden administration down to lower levels of the Pentagon. Uh, but there's an ongoing war, and it's an important one for the U.S. to be supporting and, and assisting in. How they balance that is going to be, I think, one of the key stories the next year. And, and how much support that they're going to continue to have. And that comes back to the Congress question, because we're already seeing, as Leo pointed out, uh, Speaker McCarthy is, is throwing some barbs out there. We're going to see how that shakes out. I think there is a sense there's been polls done showing widespread support for supporting Ukraine, including among Republicans. Uh, I think the fact that the House has got such a thin majority and that the Senate remained in Democratic hands probably means that things will be okay for Ukraine, but we're going to have to find out. And Marcus, you get the last word. What are you watching? So I've said it a lot today, but supply chain inflation and, and workforce, you know, d d how do these issues continue to impact defense companies? And w one thing is also, do defense cap companies and even the Pentagon and just government as a whole do they do they are they able to attract maybe some of these folks from commercial tech who have been laid off in in, rec in recent months? You know, I've talked to folks and, and they, they said, you know, we we need to do a better job attracting people into this sector. Well, now you have a, a bunch of people who you might not have had access to in the past. All right, Marcus, Aaron, Leo, thanks so much. It's nice talking to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the U.S.'s latest effort to hit Russia's economy includes a cap on oil prices. We discuss the impacts and how it's being implemented. We'll be right back. Nearly 10 months into Russia's war on Ukraine, the U.S. and its allies are still trying to find ways to weaken Russia's economy. On December 5th, a ban on all imports of Russian oil by ship went into effect. More than three dozen countries are also agreed to impose a price cap on the oil Russia can sell. Ben Cahill is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be with you. The price cap was set at $60 a barrel. Why that number? Well, it took quite a while to arrive at this number. Uh, what U.S. Treasury officials and the rest of the G7 were trying to do is create pressure on the Russian economy and deprive the country of oil revenues while avoiding a really sharp shock to the global oil market and avoid a price that would cause shortages and uh, a potential price spike. So when the price cap was originally proposed, I think the idea was to set it at around $40 a barrel, and eventually they decided on a much higher number. And I think the idea was basically 
to try to avoid that disruption to the oil market. And it probably came at the expense of cutting Russian oil revenue. A price cap at $60 a barrel probably will not do as much to deprive Russia of the revenue that it gets per barrel. Well, but I wanted to ask you to, to put that number in perspective for us historically uh, with respect to the price of oil. I mean, how, how high is $60 a barrel? Yeah, what policymakers wanted to do with this price cap was to set it at a level above Russia's cost of production so that it would have incentives to keep producing oil, but it set it below market levels. And what we've seen in recent months is that Russian oil has been selling at a pretty steep discount relative to the global oil benchmarks like Brent oil. Um, there are multiple reasons for this, but one is that, you know, when the war broke out, a lot of companies just stopped doing business with the Russian oil industry. Um, big oil companies like Shell and a lot of the commodity trading houses just didn't want to take the public pressure and the heat, and they didn't want to do business with Russia. As a consequence, it had fewer buyers, and it really had to discount its oil. So in a way, what the price cap is doing is just extending and institutionalizing this de discounted price for Russian oil that's been in the marketplace for some time. So, Ben, I mean, is this expected to decrease Russia's oil profits in a way that would impact their execution of the war in, on Ukraine in any way? I think ultimately the goal is to cut Russian oil revenue and deprive it of the money that it needs for its war machine. Um, the reality is I think economic sanctions don't have that kind of immediate impact. It would probably be unrealistic to think that Russia is suddenly going to change its, its calculus on Ukraine as a result of these sanctions. But I would say over the medium term and beyond, the outlook for the Russian oil industry is pretty bleak. I mean, it's lost a lot of technical partners, investment partners. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of companies don't want to do business with Russia. Uh, oil field services companies have pulled out. And so already Russia's really lost that ability to move to the next generation of projects, the more complicated stuff like the Arctic and and deep water and shale oil uh, because so many people have exited. But I think um, it's probably not gonna take much of a hit in terms of its oil revenue uh, in the coming years. And it's still earning a lot per barrel. I mean, one of the consequences of a pretty tight global oil market is that prices have been high. So since the war was launched, oil and gas revenues in Russia have been pretty strong. Ben, how are the importing restrictions and price caps enforced or is it voluntary? There is a pretty complicated enforcement scheme. The details of the price cap are, are, are quite complex. Um, basically, the principle is a lot of the uh, seaborne oil trade around the world depends on services that are provided mostly by uh, the UK and EU countries. This is uh, stuff like uh, maritime insurance, shipping services, brokerage. A lot of these services are really housed in Europe. And so the idea was to deprive those services for any oil trade above the price cap and force everyone in the marketplace to deal below that. Um, the challenge there is that Russia has the option of just trying to go outside the reach of the G7 and outside the reach of the sanction system. And what we've seen in recent months is that they've done exactly that. Uh, Russia's probably bought at least 100 tankers and is trying to provide its own maritime insurance and services for that oil trade, especially to Asia. So the test for the G7 sanction system is you know, how much does it really squeeze Russia and prevent it from having other options? And how much can Russia and other people in the marketplace find a way around it? So what do you what do you recommend, Ben, as far as ways to tighten the economic pressure on Putin? I mean, I think the oil and gas industry is really critical. Uh, if you look at government revenues in Russia, the oil and gas industry is typically provided about half of those revenues. Um, and oil revenues far outweigh natural gas revenues. 
of course, natural gas is a different story. Um, it's essentially been almost cut off to Europe at this point. They, Russia doesn't really have good alternative options because it sent a lot of that gas via pipeline to Europe. So squeezing oil revenues is really the key to creating pressure on the Russian economy. I think we just have a, a pretty tight global market. There are obviously a lot of concerns about inflation and energy costs around the world. And by setting the price cap that high, you know, I think policymakers were signaling that they just don't feel like there's the slack in the global system to try to squeeze Russia harder. So I think overall the economic impact is gonna be pretty limited. Now there is the possibility that global oil prices will rise. Uh, and if the Russian price cap is kept constant, you know, it will earn less per barrel than the rest of the market, and that differential will potentially grow over time. And and briefly, what about countries like uh, India and China, who are oil importers? Yeah, the irony of the G7 plan is that it's really about Russian oil trade to other countries. So India, China, Turkey, and other buyers of Russian oil. And they basically said, we're not going to abide by the price cap. What U.S. Treasury officials have said is that it will give the buyers more leverage um, and, you know, uh, lead to a decline in Russian revenue. And we'll have to wait and see. But we have seen in recent weeks that that price cap is, it has uh, extended this differential between the price for Russian oil and the global price. And maybe it will extend that and Russian uh, will just have to accept lower prices from India and China in the future. All right, Ben. Thanks so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargas. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.